Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters and today we'll look into a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin on this interregnum between Christmas and the New Year to look back on the major stories we covered in 2022 and how they evolved, focusing on energy and the environment. We begin with a broadcast of Background Briefing from August the 16th, 2022, on the climate bill Biden signed into law that day at the White House, a sweeping $750 billion health care, tax and climate bill in what was a much-needed victory for his administration and the Democratic Party ahead of the midterm elections. The Inflation Reduction Act will raise over $700 billion in government revenues over 10 years and spend over $430 billion to reduce carbon emissions while extending the subsidies for health insurance under the Affordable Care Act, with the rest of the new revenues going to reduce the deficit. Joining us was Jody Freeman, the Archibald Cox Professor at Harvard Law School and the founding director of the Law School's Environmental Law and Policy Program. The co-author with Michael Gerard of Global Climate Change and U.S. Law, she also serves as a counselor for energy and climate change in the Obama White House and advised the Biden transition team. We discussed her article at the New York Times, The Climate Bill Isn't Perfect, But It's Still a Major Victory. And before we begin, as the end of the year approaches, when folks make their charitable donations, I hope our listeners and donors think of background briefing and reward our determination to keep this program free of commercial advertising, corporate underwriting, and not to mention paywalls. So if you're so inclined, please go to backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or to our tax-exempt nonprofit foundation, publictruthmedia.org, where your donations, large and small, will enable us to keep offering background briefing free to the public. And I wish you and yours the happiest of holidays. And joining us now, Jody Freeman, the Archibald Cox Professor at Harvard Law School and the founding director of the Law School's Environmental Law and Policy Program, the co-author with Michael Gerard of Global Climate Change and U.S. Law. She also served as Counsel for Energy and Climate Change in the Obama White House and advised the Biden transition team. And she has an article at the New York Times, The Climate Bill Isn't Perfect, But It's Still a Major Victory. Welcome to Background Briefing, Jody Freeman. Great to be with you. Well, thanks for joining us. And today, President Biden signed into law this sweeping $750 billion health care tax and climate bill at the White House. And it's called the Inflation Reduction Act. And it will raise over $700 billion in government revenues over 10 years and spend over $430 billion to reduce carbon emissions and extend subsidies for health insurance under the Affordable Care Act and use the rest of the new revenues to reduce the deficit. So not build back better, but build back smaller. And I take it you feel it's a big step forward. I do. I mean, I think this is a major accomplishment for a few reasons, but I also think we should step back and put it together with the other legislation Congress has passed that will incentivize clean energy. So this bill, the the number I heard most recently is that it spends about $369 billion on a combination of clean energy tax credits for things like buying, you know, electric vehicles to help consumers buy things that will upgrade their home efficiency, like heat pumps and a variety of incentives and subsidies that will help create more clean energy manufacturing and drive consumer uptake. So that's a lot of spending um, and subsidy and investment 
tax credits to sort of drive a clean energy transition. But if you pair it with the other legislation Congress passed, you get even a bigger impact. So recently, a little bit under the radar, Congress passed another bill called the CHIPS Act. It's actually called Creating Helpful Incentives to Produce Semiconductors for America Act. So it's really focused on reviving the U.S. semiconductor industry, but embedded in it are a variety of investments in research and development that will also spur clean energy research and development. So that bill has a real benefit for the climate, too. And then there's a third thing that many people may have forgotten by now. But in 2021, of course, Congress passed the Bipartisan Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act. And that bill, the infrastructure bill, had a very significant amount of funding for EV charging infrastructure and also for grid modernization. So if you really look at what the Congress has done in the first two years of the Biden administration, it is a historic level of investment in climate and clean energy. And how much is this building sort of going to guide us or stimulate us or incentivize us, incentivize is the best word, to make this change? The change is underway. So how do you see this? This is a huge spur, I take it. Yeah, I mean, I, I see it as sort of the biggest investment the U.S. Congress has ever made in, in really industrial policy to try to drive clean energy technology into the marketplace and then create consumer demand for it. So I'll give you just one example of how that could work. So Congress here is spending billions of dollars to try to reward decarbonizing industrial materials like steel and concrete. Um, and they do it by creating a certification system so that the consumers, the public will be able to tell what steel is lower carbon steel, right? So buyers will know through a certification system what the carbon content is of steel and cement. And that then helps create a kind of awareness around what the carbon content is. And then there's funding to help incentivize demand for that, purchasing of that, so that states and companies and jurisdictions that are going to use it for roads and for building will be able to use it in an affordable way. So the, the bill has a collection of incentives that both create markets for lower carbon products and then help consumers buy those products. So you argue, of course, and I take it it's because these better options weren't on the table, that a more direct approach would have place caps on the amount of greenhouse gases industries can emit or tax carbon dioxide emissions by the ton in addition to funding clean energy. Those policies would make it more costly to pollute and push energy producers and consumers to shift to cleaner fuels instead. These measures only reduce emissions indirectly. So that's... So maybe maybe that's the place to start is really, let's put this bill in perspective by saying what it does and doesn't do. The... The bill really spends on incentives, tax credits to drive uptake of clean energy technology, to drive manufacturing of batteries, for example, uh, and other low-carbon technologies, and to incentivize consumers to buy them. So that's all good. That creates markets for these products and demand for these products. It will help the auto industry sell uh, low-carbon vehicles, electric vehicles. That's all to the good. But what it doesn't do, what this bill does not do, is actually put a limit on greenhouse gas emissions across the U.S. economy. 
you know, if the problem is greenhouse gas emissions, and that is the problem with climate change, the most direct thing you could do is cap those emissions, um, or another alternative would be to tax them, but you have to make polluting costly. So this bill doesn't actually attack the problem that way, and that's why, you know, in my New York Times piece, I said, look, it's not perfect. It's not the perhaps ideal solution. But what it does is it makes significant investments in the alternatives to help make the low-carbon, ener- low clean energy alternatives more attractive to consumers and to help create more research and development for the clean energy transition. So it may not be the ideal solution, but it's certainly a major step forward. And again, I'm speaking with Jody Freeman, who's the Archibald Cox Professor at Harvard Law School and the founding director of the Law School's Environmental Law and Policy Program, the co-author with Michael Gerard of Global Climate Change and U.S. Law. She also served as counselor for energy and climate change in the Obama White House and advised the Biden transition team. And she has an article in the New York Times, the climate bill isn't perfect, but it's still a major victory. So... Looking into some of the benefits in this bill, particularly getting a $7,500 tax credit to purchase a new electric car or about 4000 for a used one, there is a sort of caveat, is there not, Jody, about where the batteries come from and where the components in the battery are sourced? So there are actually um, incentives here that will require the auto companies over time to get the minerals that are in the batteries, like lithium and cobalt, from countries that have free trade agreements with the United States. So that is phased in over time in order for the car companies to take advantage of the credits that will be offered that you just mentioned. They have to phase out. Uh, minerals from non-free trade countries like China. And there are also incentives that phase in a requirement for the batteries to be made um, in the United States or in North America so that over time the battery components need to be North American made. And all of that is, you know, kind of phased in so that there's a little bit of time for the auto industry uh, to get up to speed because they don't immediately have all the sources for those minerals, for example, and we don't immediately have all of the capacity in the U.S. to manufacture all of the battery components. But it will lower the cost of cars, right? That's the problem with electric yeah. cars. The, yeah. uh, the, the, the Teslas mo- are way beyond the, the average middle-class family's uh, pocketbook. Yeah. Set, aside Teslas, set aside Teslas for the moment, which are kind of the most expensive version of these vehicles. There are a lot of electric vehicle models that are now being funded by the auto industry. They're coming rolling off the um, production line. And these credits will cl- help to close the gap and create parity between those electric vehicles, which may be more expensive because the batteries are more expensive than traditional internal combustion engines. So by giving consumers who make below a certain income threshold some help, you help make them more affordable. And I think this credit also for used EVs is really smart because a lot of people are in the market for a used car and can't afford a new car. And so I think these credits will be very helpful, not just for consumers, but I think they'll be helpful for the auto industry, which is pouring billions of dollars into making electric vehicles. And they're going to need some help from consumers um, that you know are going to buy those vehicles to make the production more affordable for the auto industry. And your piece in the New York Times, uh, Jody Freeman, the climate bill isn't perfect, but it's still a major victory. 
says that the legislation will also strengthen the legal basis for regulating greenhouse gases under the Clean Air Act, which will lead to additional reductions. Now, recently the Supreme Court appeared to gut the uh, EPA's ability to regulate greenhouse gases. So explain further, if you will. So there's a fringe benefit to this legislation, which is that by driving the costs of cleaner technology down, by making it more affordable, they actually make it more likely that regulators like the Environmental Protection Agency can raise standards. And that's because you can ask the auto industry and you can ask the power sector, power plants, and you can ask the oil and gas industry to meet higher standards for controlling their greenhouse gases if the technology to do so is more available and less expensive. So making technology more widely available and cheaper actually helps drive standards up. So there's a relationship there that's really helpful. And I should just say, there were a lot of media reports that suggested that the Supreme Court, um, you know, really, as you said, gutted or um, stripped EPA of its power to regulate greenhouse gas emissions. And it's not true. All the Supreme Court did, it is a setback, but all they did in the end was take one pathway away from the Environmental Protection Agency when it set standards for power plants. It took away the best pathway, which is to set grid-wide standards based on substituting renewable energy in for coal and natural gas. But even though the Supreme Court took that uh, weapon or that strategy away from EPA, the agency can still regulate greenhouse gases. And it can still regulate them from power plants and from the auto sector and from the oil and gas sector. So the EPA is still a powerful agency. It's still a greenhouse gas regulator. And this bill is going to help it out because this bill is going to make carbon capture and sequestration more affordable, which might mean down the road more utilities are going to be using it to control their power plant emissions. And that means it's more likely EPA can actually require it. So I think there are two great things about this bill, the climate provisions and the Inflation Reduction Act. One is that it subsidizes and incentivizes and invests in clean energy technology. And the other is it's going to help the regulators like EPA drive greenhouse gas emissions down. The, the upshot, Ian, that everybody is citing is the projection of achieving 10% more reductions uh, by 2050 toward the U.S. goal uh, to meet the Paris Agreement, that, that goal is 50 to 52 percent below 2005 levels by 2030. So the bottom line is we get to 40 percent instead of just reaching 30 percent below 2005 levels. That's the incremental 10 percent improvement I talk about. You could say, well, that seems pretty small, but actually it's only seven years or so uh, to 2030, and another 10 percent reduction by then is pretty good. And it gets us closer to our commitment to Paris. So I think there's a lot of upside to this bill. So what do you think of environmentalists like Bill McGibbon? Uh, apparently his new book is pretty apocalyptic and almost suggests, you know, we always talked about how we're running out of time and how global warming has these detrimental multiplying effects as you lose more of the ice cap, uh, therefore less light gets reflected back into outer space and more is absorbed in the oceans, etc. And uh, that, you know, obviously under Donald Trump, we lost four years altogether. And for reasons which mystify me, uh, given that it was, after all, the Republican president, Richard Nixon, that started the EPA, that the Republicans all are in lockstep against any measures to deal with global warming. So 
What's your sense then of whether or not Bill McGibbon and others are excessively pessimistic? Well, let me just say, obviously, this legislation, these investments, and even all of the bills I cited to you that Congress has passed, all of it's not enough. I mean, there's no question that we have a major challenge here uh, with warming that is happening faster and with more negative consequences than we predicted. I I think we're seeing that all around us, heat waves, intense storms. Um, We're watching the Arctic melt faster than scientists projected. So uh, that's all undeniably happening. But I, I do think it is a good moment. I do think it's worth pausing and saying that after all these years of doing very little uh, making occasional investments in tax credits for solar and wind energy or occasionally uh, investing in energy efficiency. After all these years of rather incremental steps, the U.S. Congress has done something quite significant. And I think we ought to applaud that and build on it going forward. And the trade-offs to get uh, Senator Manchin aboard, are they fairly negligible? Um, I mean, the the trade-offs people mostly cite are that certain oil and gas leases on public lands have to be offered, have to be offered for sale. It doesn't mean they will be sold, but they have to be auctioned off if there are bidders. And then some of the leases for offshore wind uh, are tied to offering leases for oil and gas. Uh, The calculations I've seen for additional emissions that could be tied to those leases are not very significant. Um, so most people are assessing this as not a major concession, but certainly there were concessions in the bill. Um, I should say I'm an independent director on the board of an oil and gas company, ConocoPhillips, where I, on the board, you know, present these kind of views about climate change and offer insight into the energy transition. And so I can tell you that the oil and gas industry is very much thinking about the energy transition looking at these trends, going to have to adapt to these trends. And, you know, in this bill, um, there is for the first time a fee for methane emissions, uh, for for emissions that come from oil and gas facilities, from venting and flaring methane. So um, there are some provisions here that will help drive things forward. Um, that methane fee is the first tax of its kind, the first fee of its kind to come from the U.S. Congress. It's really a backstop provision in case um, you know, to make sure that the EPA finishes its rulemaking. It's now doing a rulemaking on methane control, and that fee will only have to be paid if companies don't comply with the EPA rule for methane. So now we have a kind of insurance program uh, to make sure that methane does get, um, does get reduced across the U.S. economy. So I think there's just a set of things. If you comb through this bill and you comb through the provisions, you see one thing after another – uh, that is going to help drive emissions down, although not directly, uh, for the most part, indirectly over time, which may not be perfect, as I say, but is certainly a step in the right direction. And just in closing, in terms of methane, I know that in some cities like New York, their new buildings have to be hooked up for electricity in terms of water heaters and stoves, no more stovetops with gas and and water heaters with gas. That's an important part of getting rid of methane, is the entire network of uh, gas from wells through storage, through pipelines into the house. Uh, There's no real inventory. They leak all over the place. So methane is a huge problem. And the Permian Basin, of course, in Texas is is a huge problem. And as you point out, this new bill signed today by President Biden taxes some of the seepage. So uh, 
How comprehensive is it in the long run here in the context of what I just laid out? Well, well, first, I think that the main driver of methane reduction is going to be the Environmental Protection Agency setting a standard for it for the oil and gas industry. And they've already proposed it, uh, and it's going to be finalized, I would expect, within the calendar year. And that really requires companies to um, monitor their uh, emissions of methane and take steps to reduce it once they, uh, once they evaluate whether it's leaking. So I think that's a very significant program. Uh, it's going to be a historic program from the Environmental Protection Agency, and um, uh, I think that will be the main driver. The requirements you're talking about at the state level, they're important, too, in the sense that we see more and more requirements for new buildings to um, be electrified. And we're seeing a trend toward electrification of the new building stock, just like we're seeing a trend toward electrifying vehicles. That's going to take some time. Both of those things will take some time. Uh, the fact that Congress is now infusing money into that transition is very helpful. Um, so I think we're sort of rowing in the right direction. The problem is things don't happen as urgently as they need to. And so there's still some frustration, and I really understand that. But after some years of you know pretty bad news and a lot of setbacks and moments where you know the negotiations over the, um, the Build Back Better bill were verging on collapse, multiple times. The fact that you get a package over the finish line here um, with a lot of credit to um, uh, Leader Schumer and a lot of credit to the staffers in Congress and to Senator Carper, who headed the Environmental and Public Works, Environment Public Works Committee in the Senate. And in the end, whether you think he's a hero or a villain, Joe Manchin was necessary to get this over the finish line. Once you see that this bill gets over the finish line with so much uh, investment in it for climate change, I think you've just got to acknowledge that it's a step in the right direction. Well, I thank you very much for joining us here today, Jody Freeman. Great. Great to be with you. And again, I'll be speaking with Jody Freeman, who's the Archibald Cox Professor at Harvard Law School and the founding director of the Law School's Environmental Law and Policy Program. She's the co-author with Michael Gerard of Global Climate Change and U.S. Law and also served as counselor for energy and climate change in the Obama White House and advised the Biden transition team. And she has an article in the New York Times, The Climate Bill Isn't Perfect, But It's Still a Major Victory. And that was a broadcast of background briefing for August the 16th of 2022. And we'll take a brief station break and be back with another background briefing from October the 10th of 2022. I don't want to set the world on fire. I just want to start a flame in your heart in my heart I have Welcome back, I'm Ian Masters and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org and we're now going to a broadcast from October the 10th of 2022 about how the US fought two wars to protect the Saudi regime which is now allied with Russia and China we look into what options the U.S. has in retaliating against Mohammed bin Salman's perfidy and the treachery of his allies in the U.S., such as the Trump family and the many financial institutions, Washington officials, and think tanks on the Saudi payroll. Joining us was Robert Baer, one of the most accomplished agents in CIA history and a winner of the Career Intelligence Medal, 
He's the author of four New York Times bestsellers, including Sleeping with the Devil, How Washington Sold Our Soul for Saudi Crude. He's considered one of the world's foremost authorities on the Middle East and is an intelligence and national security affairs analyst for CNN. His latest book is The Fourth Man, The Hunt for a KGB Spy at the Top of the CIA and the Rise of Putin's Russia. And we discussed how the U.S. fought two wars against Iraq to protect the Saudi regime, which now has aligned itself with Russia and China and is financing Trump's comeback while jacking up the price of gas to hurt the Democrats in the election a month away. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Robert Baer, one of the most accomplished agents in CIA history and the winner of the Career Intelligence Medal. He's the author of four New York Times bestsellers, including Sleeping with the Devil, How Washington Sold Our Soul for Saudi Crude, and he's considered one of the world's foremost authorities on the Middle East and is an intelligence and national security affairs analyst for CNN. And his latest book is The Fourth Man, The Hunt for a KGB Spy at the Top of the CIA and the Rise of Putin's Russia. Welcome to Background Briefing, Robert Baer. Thanks for having me. Well, thanks for joining us. And since you, uh, soon after you left the CIA, you apparently went through all their uh, non-classified open sources that you could publish, uh, wrote the book about Saudi Arabia, Sleeping with the Devil, How Washington Sold Our Soul for Saudi Crude. We know that uh, Gina Haspel, who you know well, who was the head of the CIA at the time of the Ashoji murder, she came out with a report that clearly uh, pended on MBS, which infuriated Jared Kushner and Donald Trump. But now that MBS has tipped his hand and has shown that he's really in alliance with Putin and with China for that matter, and he's completely defying the United States. And after Biden went over there hat in hand and did his fist bump. So at this point, is there anything that the U.S. can do to this guy who is so clearly defying America and and in fact insulting Biden and hurting the Democrats ahead of the uh, November elections in the hope that he can help engineer a comeback of Donald Trump? Well, I think it's more basic than that, Ian. I think it's an attack on the United States and NATO. I mean, you know, at this point, he's he's effectively funding Putin's war in Ukraine by lifting the price of oil so that Putin really doesn't lose much with the embargo going on against him and sanctions. So he's clearly cited politically, not just it's not just for OPEC plus. And uh, on their production, he sided with Putin very clearly, um, an enemy. So, you know, going back to the 70s, when we took over security of the Gulf, he's just saying, well, it's too bad. You guys protected us for these, you know, 50 years. You've you fought two wars for us in Iraq, essentially for for the Gulf, for the Gulf Arabs and Saudi Arabia, because they can't defend themselves. Uh, you've you've shed blood for us, but now it's a new game. We one want Putin to win in Ukraine. Uh, we want to strangle Western Europe and the United States with oil prices, and we want this Democratic administration to fail in this congressional election and the elections in 2024. It's very clear he's he's taken sides, and it, we're you know what can we do about it? You could put an embargo on Saudi Arabia, I suppose, of some sort, stop weapons sales, um, 
you know, take all sorts of financial measures against the royal family, and in particular MBS. Uh, but will we? I doubt it because we're addicted to cheap oil. And the Saudi, the Saudis still have the reserve production capacity, and we're afraid to destabilize Saudi Arabia anyway. So they, they literally have us over a barrel. And when you talk about they, is it more than MBS that hate us and that are willing to defy the U.S. after, as you point out, they fought two wars against Iraq to save Saudi Arabia's bacon, in particularly the first Gulf War. You know, Saddam Hussein had taken Kuwait and could have taken Saudi Arabia, but for the United States. So we, we literally saved the royal family. Oh, we saved him. I remember in the first Gulf War, we found out the Saudis had no filters for their tanks. So they couldn't even put their armor into play. Uh, and that's why it was so important for, for Bush, one, to in, invade Kuwait and take it back and, and destroy from the air Iraq to protect Saudi Arabia. There was no other purpose in that war um, other, other, other than protecting Saudi Arabia. They cannot defend themselves. They, they, they said that against Iran or anybody else or even Iraq until today. Uh, but it's, it's, it, but they do hate the United States at, at a very deep level. Don't forget, 15 Saudis got on those airplanes on 9-11, killed more than 3,000 Americans. And until this day, the Saudi government is not furthering the investigation. We know that from all the released um, you know, investigation reports. They simply won't let us interview the people that recruited the 15 Saudis. We don't know where the money came from. Uh, the key witnesses were never turned over. There's been no indictments. So on 9-11, 2001, Saudi Arabia, somebody at some level attacked the United States, threw us into a war on terrorism, an ill-fated war. Um, and, and they just, they have not helped. They have not helped. And that's just a fact. I mean, it, I realize the grievances go both ways, but we're talking about Saudi actions, not American. So would that suggest then that there is no countervailing forces within this vast royal family of thousands of princes, many of whom have been jailed and beaten and had their fortunes confiscated by Mohammed bin Salman, the crown prince, who was acting on intelligence provided to him by uh, Jared Kushner on who his enemies were within the royal family. And he, as we know what he did with them. So has he sufficiently intimidated the royal family that there's nobody left inside Saudi politics that could conduct a coup against this vicious punk who's now thrown his lot in with Putin and Xi Jinping? I'd say he's coup-proofed the country. I wouldn't know that for a fact. But if, if anybody would overthrow him, it would be the National Guard, which is made up by tribal elements. But people I know, you know, close to that set said there's no will to get rid of this guy. And as far as the royal family goes, I can't speak for individual princes, um, but he's protected himself. As we know, it's a totalitarian regime. Uh, you know, total surveillance on the population and the press and everybody else and the princes that, that could oppose him 
have been arrested or died or disappeared or still in jail out in the middle of the desert. All those Gulf countries are that way. There's, there is no rule of law. It's the royal family, and they destroy anybody that dares stick their head up. Um, so I don't, I don't foresee a coup. I foresee him uh, forging ahead in this alliance with Putin. And, and you have to look at it from his perspective. The person that, that will protect him uh, is Trump and, and Kushner's son-in-law and the family. And the same goes for the UAE. There's a close ties between the Trump family and UAE. They are going to fund indirectly uh, the re-election of Donald Trump. And if he wins in 2024, it, it, you know, and of course, if, you know, there's a lot of things that could happen between now and then, um, they, they will want everything. Uh, and, and also the fact that OPEC plus between Russia and Saudi Arabia controls the world's economy. We, there's nothing we can do about it. Kissinger suggested at one time invading and holding the Saudi oil fields, which is sort of a fantastic notion. I don't think we'll ever do that. But, you know, short of that, we're going to have to let Mohammed bin Salman call the shots. So, in effect, you're saying that Jared Kushner and Trump are traitors, that they're throwing their lot in with well, this crew who's against the United well, States. Of course, there's no other way to describe it. If you take money from a hostile power and you know if, if if we're fighting in ukraine essentially backing that and a former ally is throwing their weight behind the enemy that's well of treason it's it, i guess is a word you could use for that but it's certainly uh it, it isn't loyalty to an ally an ally of long standing so what can the Democrats do? It's their fate and the fate of the country. I mean, if people are paying a lot for gas in the beginning of November, the first week of November, we know that they're not necessarily sophisticated voters. And for all the gains of activism from women uh, appalled at the Supreme Court's abortion decision, etc., they could all be wiped out easily by the fact that the price of gas is high and they will blame it on Biden. Is there anything that the Democrats can do? Because at stake is the future of American democracy. We know that Trump is a wannabe authoritarian, and if he comes back, forget about it. It's all over for the United States. Well, the first thing I would do is strategic petroleum reserve. I would release all sorts of oil to temporarily drive oil down. And then I would go to the Gulf countries and, and, and break with OPEC. They don't have much surplus production, but what they do, it should be brought in as fast as we can. And we should do everything we can to isolate Mohammed bin Salman because he's doing minor damage to what he could be doing like this winter or later next year. Uh, he has to be totally... Uh, isolated, um, sanctioned even. And, you know, it's time we played, one, it's time we cut back on uh, using fossil fuels. That's clear. If anybody can't see that now, they never will. Uh, and number two is we have to play hardball with the Gulf. Um, because if be, you, what you're saying you know, is if we don't do it now, 
it's going to get worse. If Putin and Xi Jinping and MBS win and the Republicans come back, and even if they come back and take the House, you know they're going to side, they're going to cut support for Ukraine, they're going to spend the entire time with you know impeaching Biden and going out having investigations into Hunter Biden, etc. So that's what's in store for us. And then they'll lay the groundwork for Trump coming back in 2024 and they'll finance that. The writing's on the wall, is it not? Well, the writing, you know, this trial of Barack, and, 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 you know, he was clearly an agent of Saudi Arabia and the UAE. I mean, it's, it's, they had the emails, the rest of it. Everybody around Trump represented golf money. It's all about money for the Trump family. And they will simply sell it out. Um, and, and Trump will turn on any critics. And yes, he will. He will back out of the Ukraine conflict. And it's hard to say which way this will go. But, you know, will it move into Poland one day? Why not? Uh, Trump said he has no use for NATO. So Article 5, defending other NATO nations, is, is out the window. That's so... You know, this could go any way. Uh, I mean, it's it's completely unpredictable. But we know who's allied with Putin and Saudi Arabia and China and who isn't. And, you know, Biden has just got to quit messing around. He's just got to quit messing around. It's 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 an existential war. I know that sounds very alarmist, but it's an existential war is being fought in Ukraine, not just the potential for nuclear exchange, but for the control of Europe and MBS and Putin intend and have said they intend to make an assault on Western European civilization in the West, including the United States. That's clearly what he's doing now at this point. And there's, you know, there's one Saudi apologist after another that's going to come. It's on the Saudi payroll. Most of these institutes in Washington are on the Saudi payroll or the Emirati payroll, uh, they will come, they will just, and it doesn't matter whether Democrat or Republican, will stand up for the defense of Saudi Arabia. It's so few people in Washington are willing, unwilling to tell the truth about that country, even when they chop up alive a Washington Post contributor. It, it still didn't shake the Saudi lobby very much. And I could go through the names, ex-colleagues, State Department, they all leave the CIA and go work for Saudi Arabia. And they are, they are, are doing the analysis and the rest of it. And, and the mainstream press, um, that's who they, they draw on, are, are paid Saudi shills. Well, Biden has to know this more than anybody. Plus, he went over there and did the fist bump with FBS against the advice of many and was humiliated in doing so, but now is being even more humiliated by the fact that rather than help uh, lower the price of oil, MBS is doing the opposite, and Biden has egg on his face. So surely he has a motivation. Somebody has to lay out what you're talking about because it's as clear as day what's going on here. Well, it's a threat to Biden because you're absolutely right. I mean, the Republicans have said they're going to pull a Benghazi on Hunter Biden. I mean, I think it's fairly clear that Hunter Biden could brought up, be brought up on tax charges and the rest of it. But that's not what they're going to go after. They're going to paint Biden 
is part of the same corruption. There's no evidence that he he benefited from his son's business. I mean, isn't the first time the son of a president or of a senior politician is has misused the family name. This isn't unusual, but it's what the Republicans will do, and they will destroy Biden and his family uh, and the Democrats going in 2024. I mean, the, the, the strategy here on the part of MBS and Putin is very clear. They're, they're playing for keeps, the long game, um, and we're still living in yesterday that, you know, Biden thinks he can go deal with MBS. I mean, the man's a murderer. So why he ever went there and thought he could cut a deal with him, I don't know. Whoever advised Biden to do that at the State Department should be handed his head. Well, just in closing then, uh, Bob Bear, could Biden go public and have the kind of conversation we're having, you know, lay it all out about what's really happening here, who, who our friends are and who our enemies are, not just abroad, but at home? I think he should, but I don't see that in his personality and the people around him come from the same milieu as other Saudi defenders. Um, and we are just, we are just afraid to take on Saudi Arabia, always have been. And you 9-11, Khashoggi, you know, right down the line. I mean, how much more evidence do you need? When you take a bone saw, an electric bone saw to a Washington Post contributor, we know it was ordered by MBS, and he gets a pass on that. That tells me a story. Well, Bob Bear, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Thanks. And again, I've been speaking with Robert Baer, one of the most accomplished agents in CIA history and the winner of the Career Intelligence Medal. He's the author of four New York Times bestsellers, including Sleeping with the Devil, How Washington Sold Our Soul for Saudi Crude, and he's considered one of the world's foremost authorities on the Middle East and is an intelligence and national security affairs analyst for CNN, and his latest book is The Fourth Man, The Hunt for a KGB Spy at the Top of the CIA and the Rise of Putin's Russia. And that was a broadcast of Background Briefing from October the 10th of 2022. And we'll take a brief station break and be back with another Background Briefing from November the 8th of 2022. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And we are now going to a broadcast from November the 8th of 2022 with an update on the COP27 climate talks underway and an alternative approach to the fight against climate change. With the COP27 climate talks underway at a resort in Egypt frequented by Saudi princes, we spoke with David Victor, a professor at the Center for Global Transformation Endowed Chair in Innovation and Public Policy at the University of California, San Diego, where he also co-directs the Deep Carbonization Initiative. He was a convening lead author for the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change and is the author of a number of books, including Natural Gas and Geopolitics and The Collapse of the Kyoto Protocols and The Struggle to Slow Global Warming. 
His latest book is Fixing the Climate, Strategies for an Uncertain World, and he is the co-author of an article at Foreign Affairs, The New Way to Fight Climate Change. Small-scale cooperation can succeed where global diplomacy has failed. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now, David Victor, a professor and the Center for Global Transformation, Endowed Chair in Innovation and Public Policy at the University of California, San Diego, where he also co-directs the Deep Decarbonization Initiative. He was a convening lead author of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change and is the author of a number of books, including Natural Gas and Geopolitics and The Collapse of the Kyoto Protocols and The Struggle to Slow Global Warming. His latest book is Fixing the Climate, Strategies for an Uncertain World. And he is the co-author of an article at Foreign Affairs, The New Way to Fight Climate Change, Small-Scale Cooperation Can Succeed Where Global Diplomacy Has Failed. Welcome to Background Briefing, David Victor. Well, Ian, it's really great to be with you. Well, thanks for joining us, David. And so far at the COP27 conference in uh, Sharm el-Sheikh, Egypt, small and, and some endangered nations have been taking to the podium and pointing out record profits of oil companies, etc. And also there's a move on the part of the UN to address greenwashing by corporations and cities and banks, etc., uh, and particularly oil companies. So Biden is going to be there on Friday. I guess the rich nations have yet to talk, but they've been getting an earful so far. In fact, the head of uh, Barbados, Prime Minister, basically described the situation between the rich and the poor nations as almost going back to the colonial age. Yeah, I don't know if it's the colonial age, but this is this is a dispute that's been brewing for a long time. And the previous big climate conference a year ago in Glasgow, Scotland, ended kind of just barely with agreement. The developing countries left pretty unhappy that they had not been getting the kind of money that they expected from the rich industrialized countries. And that was already festering. And then you see things like these record profits from hydrocarbon companies. And so that's this has kind of been guaranteed that these these disputes would be on full display. I think what's what's interesting here is is what's the route the route forward? The developing countries have a very clear message. The industrialized countries that haven't yet spoken yet and aren't going to take on the developing countries kind of head on. But nonetheless, they've got all kinds of other priorities. You know, there's looming recession. You've got a land war in Europe, and on and on and on. It's not really an auspicious time for big new agreements on transferring more money from industrialized to developing countries. And yet, the developing countries are already feeling the effects of climate change, which mostly they didn't cause, and they they're understandably upset about it. Well, in terms of the global landscape, the president of um, Ukraine, Zelensky, basically made a speech saying that you're never going to deal with climate change unless you deal with peace. Yeah, and, and, and that's right. And you're never going to deal with climate change unless you deal with the migration problems that are linked to to you know, people being pushed out of their homelands because of the extreme impacts of climate change. And you're never going to deal with climate change without fundamentally dealing with a whole bunch of issues about economic development. And so climate change is one of those topics that, that links to everything else. And on the one hand, that makes it a kind of granddaddy of a topic and one where you can imagine solving lots of problems. On the other hand, it also brings out lots of disagreements. And I think when there's when there's low levels of trust in the international system, which has been true for a long time, those disagreements just kind of fester. And I think it it's one of the reasons why these really big global conferences, like what's going on in Egypt right now on, on climate change, these big global conferences either end in gridlock 
or they end with kind of pablum agreements where people kind of agree to disagree, but they nonetheless walk away feeling like they agreed, and then not a lot of hap- not a lot happens. So, is there any focus though, in terms of this sort of blame game, if you will, on some of the big players in in hydrocarbons? And in fact, you, you know, Russia, ever since this war, the price of oil has gone up, and the aggressor in the in this case in the war in Ukraine is is profiting. And they've made a deal, OPEC Plus, with Saudi Arabia to cut production, which is going to impact this midterm. At least that was the fear on the part of the Democrats and Biden, who are furious with it. So is anybody sort of pointing the finger? If you, It's one thing to point a finger at the oil companies who are making record profits. But what about Saudi Arabia and, and Russia, both of whom are, are the biggest producers of uh, oil yeah, I mean, there's a little bit of finger pointing of that type going on, but it's a whole lot easier to point fingers at big Western oil companies and to blame them. And some of this is just the normal theatrics of a global conference like this. I think to me, what's interesting is that inside all of that noise, you're starting to see some more practical deals. This article that you mentioned at the top that's in Foreign Affairs last Friday from a big team of us, a bunch of people from all around the world who've been thinking about these issues for a long time. One of the arguments we make in that article is that you're going to make progress not with big global agreements, like what would be the outcome of the Egyptian conference on on climate change, but instead by small groups of highly motivated countries and and firms that are going off and doing things. And a good example of that is just last week, the United States and the United Arab Emirates, centered on Abu Dhabi, made a inked an agreement to spend about $100 billion on clean energy over the course of the next few decades. Um, And when you look closely at at the Abu Dhabi part of this or the Emirates part of this, it's really interesting. You know, that's a big oil producing country, but at the same time, they're building one of the largest nuclear reactors in the world, brand new nuclear reactor just coming online right now, uh, just west of Abu Dhabi on the Saudi border. So that's, you know, six or seven gigawatts, huge amount of clean energy. They're building a lot of solar. And so what you're seeing is a lot of kind of clutching and gearing going on in these big, even in the oil producing countries, where they're trying to figure out how do you make a lot of money right now, which is doing a good good job at that. But then also, how do you invest in the future? And I think the the some countries are doing that. I think the Russians are pretty much hopeless, and the Russians, for the most part, have, I think voted themselves off the off the global island for quite a long time. And I don't see a lot of attention to Russia in the climate change conference. They're just completely uncooperative. They're constantly in the way, and people are mostly trying to navigate around them. So your article at Foreign Affairs, A New Way to Fight Climate Change, Small-Scale Cooperation Can Succeed Where Global Diplomacy Has Failed. The picture is a picture of a vast solar array in, in the Emirates. Is that what, where it is? Yeah, and, and, uh, and, and indeed one of the largest, I think to this date, still the largest in the world, but there's so many going up that, 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 that honor is constantly moving around the world. One of the largest solar arrays in the world is in fact in, uh, in the Emirates. And it's a sunny place. Um, they've got a good grid, um, and they, to, you know, up to a point, can connect a whole lot of solar. And it's in their interest to do that, partly because they're trying to reduce the consumption of natural gas and oil for making electricity, which lowers emissions, but also allows them to sell more in the global market. But it also allows them to help you know, play a role in bringing down the cost of solar. And the same has been true for their nuclear plant. And so I think, I think that's the larger story here. And it, it's these kinds of practical deals, real investments on the ground that kind of change facts create new interest groups, make it possible for countries to move faster around climate change because it seems like it becomes less expensive. And you have big, bigger political supporters inside these countries that want to push that ahead. And that's true even in a big oil producing country uh, like the Emirates. 
But given that Russia has weaponized oil and gas and that a part of Putin's strategy is to both make Americans feel the pain at the pump and already the Republicans are hinting that they may cut aid to Ukraine, but the Europeans, of course, are going to have a cold winter along with the Ukrainians, and Germany is a, is a very key player there. So solar arrays don't necessarily work that well in Germany. What kind of initiatives are there in terms of wind? Is that is that an alternative? Because as ugly and hideous as this war in Ukraine is, the silver lining might be a, a forced, you know, going cold turkey on oil and gas out of necessity. Yeah, and, and I think that's a, your your question's pointing exactly to to where, in fact, European policy is headed, and frankly, American policy is headed as well. And I think I find it useful to separate the short term from the long term. The short term, over the next few years, the Europeans are going to find anything that they can that burns, and they can't go cold turkey on oil and gas, especially on natural gas. They're going to bring in more gas from the United States in the form of liquefied natural gas, LNG. Um, that's become very expensive. That market's very tight right now. A lot of that LNG is actually destined for Asian markets, and so it's being redirected into Europe, and it's driving up the global price. And so they're scrambling to get everything they can for the next few years. But at the same time, they've doubled down on their their strategy for, you mentioned wind is, is part of it, wind for, for making electricity, hydrogen over the long term, so switching away from conventional natural gas to hydrogen. And you put it all together, and my take is that the the Clean, so-called clean energy transition has probably actually been accelerated because of the war in Ukraine, because it's created political commitments to reduce the dependence on Russia. It's also, frankly, driven up prices. And when the prices of fossil fuels are really high, it makes it easier for some of the alternatives to come in because, frankly, they look less expensive. And what about the talk about greenwashing from at the Glasgow COP? UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres appointed 17 experts to review the integrity of these non-state net zero commitments and Canada's former environmental minister said at a news conference launching this new report from the UN that too many of these net zero pledges are little more than empty slogans and hype. Bogus net zero claims drive up the cost that ultimately everyone will pay. How much of a problem is uh, greenwashing? I think it's a pretty big problem. You know, you've got a whole bunch of companies, especially brand conscious companies that are out there saying when they want to do something and they, they don't know what to say. And so they say, well, we, we'll have net zero emissions by 2050 or 2030 or some kind of goal like that. And then the CEO comes back from making the announcements, turns to his or her staff and says, OK, what do we do next? And the answer is they don't know. And I think the good news in that is it's a signal of effort. The bad news in that is that you've got a lot of companies now that are focusing on how to make the numbers add up without actually being able to reduce emissions yet. They haven't figured out what options work and not. A lot of them are buying these offset credits. Most of those credits are, are bogus. And so it's basically fraud. And so I think that's what we've got going on is you've got a whole bunch of companies that are committed. Nobody really knows what to do. And so it's easy to make announcements and hard to really change things. And I guess I'd say one more thing about that, which is the place where it's been really interesting to watch is in finance. One of the most prominent announcements in Glasgow a year ago was about this alliance of, of financiers representing, depending on how you count, $130 trillion of capital that was ready to go green, according to their backers. And that alliance has basically come unglued because when you look closely at you know what's a green investment, 
Are you willing to make an investment without a without a, an additional economic return? Those are the kinds of real questions that adults in finance need to answer, and they hadn't really been answered. And so I think folks got, you know, to use the metaphor, they got out over their ski tips and making bold claims without really knowing how to put them into practice. And that's where we are right now. So is there a way then for, I mean, obviously, reparations, that's a word that John Kerry, who's leading the U.S. delegation, uh, wanted to avoid. And of course, it's a politically dead on arrival here in, in another context in terms of race relations in the United States. So what is the way forward in order to, as we started out mentioning how most of those who've been at the podium so far at COP27 in Sharm el-Sheikh, uh, Egypt, have been the poorer nation. Some of them are literally going under uh, these small Pacific islands because of the rising sea levels. And uh, as I mentioned, uh, Prime Minister Barbados has, has compared the divide between the rich and poor nations as a, as a form of new colonialism. So what are the answers? I mean, isn't that really what you, your your article, Foreign Affairs, is about a lot? But... Uh, who's going to run with the ball? Yeah, so I mean, that's exactly what the article is about. And I guess I'd say three things. Um, first is there'll be a lot of talk about reparations and big numbers will be discussed and, and none of that's going to happen. I think that's politically dead on arrival. Um, the, a smaller set of numbers and a very important uh, uh, set of funding commitments, about $100 billion per year, a lot of it going into helping to build capacity in developing countries. The Western world has not delivered on that. They delivered in part, but not fully. That's a much more realistic discussion, in part because it, those kinds of funds can go help build capacity in developing countries, make it possible to do a lot more and leverage additional additional capital. The second thing is it really is important to, I think, keep the right yardsticks. We're actually making a huge amount of progress. 15 years ago, the world was on track for five or six degrees of warming. Now we're on track to maybe two and a half or three degrees of warming. That's still a lot of warming, but it's not five or six degrees. And so the yardsticks that have been used, stopping warming at one and a half to two degrees above pre-industrial levels, the, the numbers that are written into the Paris Agreement, those yardsticks were never achievable. And so there's kind of a built-in pessimism into this process. But when you take a step back, we're actually making a lot of progress. And that leads to the third thing I'll say, which is really what we talk about in this article on foreign affairs, which is the really big progress is being made by these small groups of highly motivated governments and firms that are out building new industries. They're building new steel industries. They're building new electric power industries, figuring out how to limit, how reduce emissions. It takes a long time, and they're starting to bend the curve, and, and the speed is different in every different sector. And, and I think that's I'm very concerned that the Egypt, Egyptian meetings are going to end in a kind of political gridlock and everyone's going to have pessimism at the overall process. And yet when you take a step back, it's these small groups that are out really changing facts on the ground and making it easier to transform these industries that will be the ultimate real engines of progress here. Well, just in the last couple of minutes, David Victor, I mean, obviously, you mentioned nuclear is making a comeback, and I, I, I imagine the Germans are sort of sorry that they shut down their nuclear plants as a result of Fukushima. They're trying to revive some of them. But coal, of course, is also coming back, you know, maybe in the short term, but still, aren't coal plants one of the most identifiable stationary sources of CO2 emissions in the, on the planet? And I just noticed the other day Joe Biden said something about replacing coal with clean energy, and Senator Joe Manchin just had a hissy fit over it. So where are we in terms of dealing with that problem, which would logically be a low-hanging fruit. 
yeah, and a huge amount of the overall progress is going to be measured by how quickly we move from um, conventional coal plants, especially inefficient conventional coal plants, to much cleaner alternatives, natural gas, and eventually uh, nuclear renewables and, and other zero emission sources. And there might be a role for fossil fuels in that. Advanced natural gas plants that capture their pollution before it's emitted in the atmosphere. There's a lot of work going on on that. So I think that's still a, a work in progress. But but the the it is low hanging fruit. I do think governments have learned something over the last year, which is they know they need to move beyond coal, but they also need to be careful how quickly they do it, lest you have a repeat of this kind of experience that we've had with with uh, um, the natural gas markets in in Europe. And that's why we see the Germans extending the lifetime of their coal-fired power plants a little bit because they need to keep the lights on and they, if the prices get out of control and energy is not seen as reliable, then there's going to be a political backlash. And so I think we're moving the system about as quickly as we can. The, uh, an interesting place to watch here is South Africa. There's a big deal announced in last year in Glasgow that includes mainly uh, debt finance, but also some grants to help shut down and switch away from coal in South Africa. South Africa is a very coal-rich and, and coal-intensive country. And in as that deal is probably be reworked a little bit, a little more role, a little bigger role for grants. As that deal is reworked and is turned into reality, that'll be a good indicator of how quickly the Western world can help accelerate this shift away from conventional coal. And I take it Australia is in the same boat too, right? That means they export an awful lot of coal. Absolutely, you know, Australian politics uh, are wrapped around the axle of the coal industry in Australia. And the country, frankly, like the United States, swings uh, left and right when it comes to climate change policy. And a big chunk of that is because there's a big vested interest in continuing the coal-dominated economy. I don't see how, over the long term, that kind of economy is sustained. Well, David Victor, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Well, it's always a great pleasure to be with you. Well, thank you, David. Again, I've been speaking with David Victor, who's a professor and the Center for Global Transformation Endowed Chair in Innovation and Public Policy at the University of California, San Diego, where he also co-directs the Deep Carbonization Initiative. He was a convening lead author for the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change and is the author of a number of books, including Natural Gas and Geopolitics and The Collapse of the Kyoto Protocol and the Struggle to Slow Global Warming. His latest book is Fixing the Climate, Strategies for an Uncertain World, and he's the co-author of an article at Foreign Affairs, The New Way to Fight Climate Change, Small-Scale Cooperation Can Succeed Where Global Diplomacy Has Failed. And you've been listening to a retrospective of Background Briefing's 2022 programs on our coverage of energy and the environment. And tomorrow we look back on our coverage of the growth of American fascism in 2022. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon. And to help us sustain this program into the future and assure it remains free to all, please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or publictruthmedia.org, where you will find our nonprofit Public Truth Media Foundation, where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you missed any of today's program and would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we'll include extended interviews searchable by topic, 
and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, and we also encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media, and please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family, and colleagues. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing at backgroundbriefing.org. Bye for now. The guy that lived next door in 305 Took the kids to the park and disappeared by half past nine Who will ever know how much she loved them so That dark night alone in America A quiet voice singing something to me An angel song about the home of the brave in this land here Oh